I want to begin this morning with a bit of audience participation. So I'm curious to hear, please with a show of hands or shouts of love and acclamation, how many of you have seen the Harry Potter movies? Raise your hand if you've seen the Harry Potter movies. Okay, keep your, keep your hands raised. Come on, it's okay. Okay, now um, continue to raise your hand if you've read the Harry Potter books. Okay, a few less. How many of you have seen the Lord of the Rings movies, the Lord of the Rings trilogy? More of you. That's delightful, by the way, to hear. More of you have seen that than Harry Potter, personally. <laughs> Seriously. Um, but how many of you have read the books, Lord of the Rings books? Okay, significantly less, but seriously, that's actually pretty impressive, as you have. Okay, how many of you have seen the film The Shawshank Redemption? Shawshank Redemption. Oh, wonderful. Almost everyone here. It's been on TNT or TBS like 50 million times, I understand. How many of you have read the book? Yes, me as well. Uh, how many of, yeah, how many of you knew that it was a book beforehand? Short story, actually. Yeah, a few of us, a few of us, I got to read the book as well. I bet you even fewer of you could guess who wrote the book. Uh, I know those of you obviously who've read it know that, but I'm guessing very few of you, because it's a story about liberation and friendship and love. Who do you think may have written that book? Nelson, Nelson Mandela, I could guess. <laughs> no. <laughs> Actually, Stephen King. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very different. The same author of horror who brought you The Shining and It. Uh, also wrote The Shawshank Redemption. Very interesting. Um, this little Q&A between you and I, I hopefully demonstrated what you already know personally, is that people today are rarely reading the book. They're watching the movie. Right? They're, they're, we are watching the Netflix original. We are watching the HBO adaptation. That is where we are finding our story, our, our information. The U.S. Department of Labor's latest extensive search survey about watching TV and media revealed that two and a half hours, 2.4 hours, of the average person's daily leisure time is spent watching TV or media. Most by far of any, of any way to spend a person's leisure time. And if you think it's just Americans sending in their dirty media here, all right, it, it goes beyond that. For instance, UK's viewing usage even higher. It stands at over three hours per person on average. I can keep going on with culture after culture. I'm not trying to single people out. You get the idea. When the modern person learns, he or she is more likely to absorb information uh, visually. More than they are auditory learners or, or, or verbal learning, Right, speech or seeing words on a piece of paper, we are visual learners by and large. And, and there's much good about this, right? We, we've said for, for years, way beyond media, a picture says a thousand words. So pictures can, can certainly express something that words sometimes cannot. And we, and we can chronicle victories in our lives and every, every expression of our faces right on video in a way that people can see, that we can share with others. And there's much that's that's good about that as well. One result of all this, though, is that people are not only reading less books, they're reading less of this book. By which I mean, if people are listening later, the Bible. Less and less people, that means, are reading about God's expressive delight 
in creating us and the world we live in. Less and less people are, 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 are reading about how sin came at people from every angle and, and every expression of sin was equally as frustrating then as it is now. And most importantly, there's less reading of the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. There's less reading about the hope that we have that we can't have in Christ. Thankfully, God had a plan from long ago for people who no longer read the book. They could watch the movie. They could watch the movie. And I'm not talking about Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, nor am I talking about well-meaning but low-budgeted Christian films that come out. <laughs> oh, I, that wasn't a knock on them. I just said they're well-meaning but low-budget. That's all I said. I, I, goodness, you read a lot into that. I, I'm talking about neither of those things. I'm talking about marriage. I'm talking about marriage. And if you are in one, then I'm talking about your marriage this morning. Your marriage, friends, is designed by God to display the gospel. Your marriage is designed to to play out on stage Christ's love for the church, God coming down in the flesh, living the life we couldn't, dying a death we deserve, stooping down to us to save and rescue us, to sacrifice himself on our behalf that we might live with God forever. Your marriage is meant to display even that. Read with me, if you would, Ephesians 5, starting in verses 22, and I'll read through verse 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are all members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, as the passage progresses, you may have noticed how husbands, Christ, how wives, church, blur together. Let me me read just two verses previous to what we read last. Verse 31, starting there. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that refers to Christ and the church. This verse is from Genesis chapter 2, the beginning of all creation. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years, we don't know exactly how many before, Paul was writing. And Paul is saying something interesting. It's mostly about Christ and the church. We would never have guessed that when we read Genesis 2. We would have thought, wait a minute. That's not the case. The, the purpose of marriage we see right here, uh, it, it's, it's to 
have fulfillment, to maybe have a family, fulfill our needs. Something about physical intimacy, one flesh, that it looks like when a man loves a woman, a woman loves a man, this is what marriage is all about. And what Paul says, I'm telling you a mystery, that it's about something bigger than that. It's about something bigger than even the person some of you are sitting next to right now. It is. It's about Christ and the church. It's about the gospel. God designed marriage between a man and a woman to help people watch the gospel in a way that that no earthly relationship can display. You may show Christ in a myriad of ways in the way you relate to people. There is nothing like the potential of showing the gospel in a marriage relationship. It's just the way God has designed it, and it's wonderful. A marriage between a man and a woman is the movie now playing for a world that hasn't read the book. It's it's the replay. It's the TV replay for an event that's already happened in the past. And people get to see it again, played out before them. If you love Jesus and you love his good news, marriage matters to you. Marriage has implications to you. One New Testament author, the author of Hebrews, puts it this way, Hebrews 13, verse 4. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Among all. Little boys who think girls are gross and girls who think boys are disgusting. They are called to hold marriage in honor. They're called to to lift it up. Right? Teenagers, many of whom have been hurt by marriages, called to still lift marriage up. Single people for whom marriage can't come quickly enough or for whom it seems that those of us who are married talk about our marriage way too much. I get it, but still, holding marriage in honor among all. If the gospel matters to you, marriages have to matter to you. They have to. It is the movie for the people who aren't reading the book. And, and, and to those of you who aren't married, let me say this. I, 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 don't want to speak, I know I speak for Katie, and I think I speak for most marriages when I say, we need your help. We need your help. This is not a sermon this morning just for husbands or just for wives. It's for you too. You're not going to see a perfect marriage. But when you see a husband initiate, sacrifice, listen well, encourage that man. And when you see a wife encourage and, and serve and labor well, encourage that woman. And ask us how you can pray for our marriage. We need this. So this morning, for example, we're going to focus on husbands. That God's grace, his loving power, made active in our lives, reaches on the other side of saying, I do. It reaches beyond being just a groom, but for the, all of our lives, being a husband. And if you're unmarried this morning, I want to encourage you, do not check out. Do not kind of let your mind go elsewhere, because you're going to hear about a husband's role in a marriage relationship to display the goodness of Jesus. And you're going to know how then to initiate those of us who are husbands, to, sorry, to encourage those of us who are husbands, you know how to pray for us for those who are husbands. So please listen up. We need your prayers. We need your encouragement. Every husband is called to love. His role and his grand purpose of displaying the gospel, he is called to love with self-sacrificial leadership for her good 
which is for your good. And you're going to see that in the bulletin laid out this morning if you want to follow along. Every husband's called to love with self-sacrificial leadership for her good, which is also for your good. So let's follow along this morning. Number one, husband and Christ, love with self-sacrificial leadership. And immediately the question might come up, must the husband lead? Must it be the husband? Should, should he be the one to lead a marriage and a family, ideally? Absolutely. Absolutely. Verse 23 couldn't be more clear where Paul says it to us, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And yet I understand even as we read that, there is a dark history, even in the church, but certainly in society, there's a, there's a dark history behind the leadership of men, behind many men. The, the, the recent Me Too movement is an important, important call. It's an important beacon and reminder of this reality, this illumination of women who, who have come out and, and just shared so boldly. They've been harassed. They've been demeaned. They've been assaulted, even hurt under the influence of the powerful men. So when we hear husband as head of the wife, Sometimes our minds immediately go there. We think, no, this can't happen. And, and I want to say I understand that. I, I, I get that. But I also want to encourage us not to throw sort of the baby out with the bathwater, not just completely dismiss what Paul says. Before any of us sort of harden ourselves or just reject Paul's teaching outright, consider how, two things just for me, if you would. Number one, the husbands to whom Paul writes are themselves submitted to Christ at their head. They are themselves submitted to someone else, Jesus Christ. It, Paul is not saying, do what you want to do because you want to do it. Paul said, just as you, the church, you men are submitted to Jesus under his loving authority, I mean, his care, self-sacrificial leadership. That's, 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 the, that's the context here. And I know even saying that, that some of you who listen aren't yet Christians. Or some of you in here who have husbands who aren't yet followers of Jesus. And I want to say, I've counseled couples and individuals many years in those situations, and, and I, we love you and we want to support you. We understand that, that that makes things more tricky. That makes things sometimes harder. And, and I want to say God gives more grace. He says in James chapter 4, James chapter 4 says that, when you're trying to follow Jesus and trying to be, look different in the world and the way you live out your marriage relationship, no matter what that looks like, God gives more grace. He can help you. Yes, there are going to be instances where that's just going to look different, but you can still share Christ with your spouse. You can still show Christ to your kids. And I wish I had more talk, time to talk about what that looked like. I don't, but consider this second thing too, please, that as we think about Husbands being the head of the wife, and we sometimes reject that outright. Please remember, husbands, hardly any men, want the responsibility of leadership. Hardly any men actually want this responsibility. Most men flee from it, and those who don't would assume just shrink from it. Many husbands today are far more comfortable to let their wives do the leading of their families, to make all the final arrangements, to go ahead and just tell me what you've decided. I'll let you take over. And that's a man problem. That's a husband problem, guys. Maybe men, we've, we've, we've just sensed what's required of a leader, and so we hide from it. 
We, we, even if we haven't read it in the book, we sense that much will be expected of us, consistent sacrifice along the way to do a good job as a husband. And guess what? The book confirms it. You may have sensed it in your heart and in your experience, and the book confirms, yeah, it's going to be hard. Look at verse 25 again with me, if you would. It's not just any kind of leadership. Look at the kind of leadership it is. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ's leadership is love expressed through self-sacrifice. There is no other way. It's love expressed by laying his life down for us. The cross is our model, men. If you're a husband, that's your model, the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus foreshadowed this in his own ministry when his disciples were talking about authority, talking about being the head, right, being the big guy. And Jesus says, you want some authority? You want to be great? Here's how you do it, by serving other people. And he closed talking about his own model of leadership. He said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life to lay down his life as a ransom for many. That is Jesus, and that's the model for husbands. So before we think, okay, wait a minute, husband and leadership, men and leadership, that's about, understand the context for which Paul's saying it is laying down our lives for our spouses. Now, what does that look like practically for a husband? I think it looks like pioneer leadership. I call pioneer leadership. Who is a pioneer? A pioneer is someone who goes first, right? A a Davy Crockett, a Lewis and Clark, a true pioneer doesn't go first to get the glory, but rather cut through the brush, take on all the initial scrapes, the tree cuts, the animal bites, the insects all up in his face, right? To make the way safe for others to go on the same path. That's how I envision a husband from what I understand from God's word, is a, is a pioneer. So a pioneering leadership may look like, for a husband, being the one who first executes discipline, the new form of discipline towards your child. And he's the one who steps up to do it, because it's hard. Or, or, or telling your parent, his parents or your parents during a Christmas holiday, hey, guys, I think we just need an afternoon away as a family or as a couple, or I think we might just need a night away as a couple as your parents or hers look along disapprovingly. A husband should be the one to step up a lot of times to do that. It may look like grabbing her sunglasses before a monkey grabs them first. You can see this is personal to me. As I went out on the porch and the monkey was equidistant between her and the sunglasses, and I thought, who's going to blink first? And I've never been around a wild monkey. All right, I, it's me. I got to go do it. I'm the one. It may look like being the one who goes out of his way to seek wise counsel or to, to speak up and say the thing that neither one of you wants to say, whether it's to a, a landlord who takes advantage of you or to a teenager who wants to take advantage of you, and you're, you speak up. That's what sometimes it looks like for, for a husband to show pioneering leadership, and obviously these experiences are all personal to me, and maybe some of them may be personal to you. And, and let me say this, husbands, taking the first step being a pioneer in your marriage won't always be easy, especially if that's not the way that you have tried to love your wife before. When, when, when Katie said, I do, my wife Katie said, I do, she married a sinner 
when, when I said I do to Katie, I married a sinner. All right, so early on in our marriage, well, when our boys were first born, I retreated from being a good leader. I retreated from being that pioneer kind of leader. I, I retreated to, I even had places I would retreat to physically because I didn't want to take on the responsibility that was mine to take all the time. And, and, and some people might have, you've heard people call a man cave, right? Men having a man cave. There's a reason it's called a cave, right? There's a reason people no longer call it the husband's study or the husband's strategic thinking, strategic leadership think tank, right? It's called a man cave because we retreat to it, right? When you think of, when you think of a cave, you think of a bear in hibernation. That's oftentimes what a man does in a marriage. If he doesn't physically go to his man cave, he, he hibernates. He says, I just want to I just want it to be easy. I want to get away from this. I felt this myself, man. I'm not saying this to continue. I'm saying this as a fellow participant in hibernating in my marriage relationship. Such that when I started to pioneer again, when, when God got my attention and I started to, to lead sacrificially again, Katie resisted. She's a strong woman. And for so many years, I burdened her with trying to figure out a lot of things on her own when we first had kids. And so what's her initial resistance? Uh, I'm, no, <laughs> no. And sometimes that's going to happen in a relationship. When you start up, when you make those, that first step, men, even after this morning, to be that kind of self-sacrificial leader, to, to, to make the way safe for others, to take on the knocks for yourself, to make the way safe for others, you're going to experience some resistance. And I want to encourage you, don't flee from the initial resistance. Don't run from it. Don't turn around and run back to the way things were. Paul gives us some encouragement in this. You might remember the last time we read about Christ giving himself up for us is in verse 1 of this same chapter. Look at that, chapter 5, verse 1 of Ephesians. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Husbands, every time you go first to take the heat, to risk failure, to take the knocks on yourself. It is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, just as Jesus' sacrifice was. It is a fragrant offering to your spouse who will eventually recognize it, even though it might take some time. It's it's a fragrant offering to an onlooking world who hasn't read the book, but is watching your life, the movie. It's watching your marriage. So go for it. Number two, husband Christ, this is for her good. So for her good. So Christ, let's start with Christ here, who died for our good. Christ didn't die and rise from death to, to just sort of barely get us in, to sort of sneak us in the back door of heaven, like, okay, I know you guys have been really bad. I died. Come on through. Let's get in. Come on, guys. Like, that's not why Jesus died. He died to present to himself us in splendor as a bride set apart, walking down the aisle in white, set apart in beauty in holiness, he wants to do something with the lives we're living now. He does this through his word, we're told, right, in this passage. Continually leading us back to the gospel, of washing us with the word. That means Jesus is always pointing us back to the reality that, yes, we're sinful. More sinful than we ever wanted to ever believe, but more loved than we ever dared think. More accepted, adopted, cherished, and chosen by God. Husbands, part of your pioneering leadership includes going first in this kind of area too. 
even though your spouse may be more knowledgeable than you, more motivated than you, we're called to find ways to get in front of God's word, read it, and apply it to ourselves, and then share it. That's what this might look like for you, just simply sharing the verses you read that morning. Maybe it was the verse of the day you got in your email. And just forwarding that on to your spouse and saying, here's what I learned. It might look like just, just being equipped to remind your spouse of gospel truths, of Jesus' unconditional acceptance of her, of Jesus' patience with her, his presence with her, Jesus' ultimate hope for her. Husbands, we're supposed to remind our spouses of these things. This may sound intimidating. Just try your best to start somewhere. Again, just forwarding on something you read. Just sharing what you read that morning and read it. Start there and stay humble as you do it. Your wife will see that you're trying to serve her. In fact, it's possible this reference to washing of water here. Did you read that? It might be a reference to Jesus washing his disciples' feet. A, a picture of a servant who wants the very best for us, and so he serves us. About eight years ago, Katie and I started to listen to a, pardon me, a series of messages about family worship. And we were both persuaded of our need every night to, to set aside about 15 minutes for, for Bible reading, for singing to God, and for prayer. And so we both took different responsibilities. Uh, Katie would choose and lead the music and lead the prayer, and I would lead the Bible study with the kids. We both would help in different ways and contribute as a partner should. So I would do the Bible study part and lead that. And, and you might look up here and say, oh, that's easy for you to say, preaching pastor. All right, All right. Bible dork who loves the Bible. Bible nerd who loves it, right? And, and if you said that and you thought that about me, you would be wrong. You would be wrong that it was easy for me. I struggled to lead well, to engage Katie and the boys well and, in a way that helped them in their lives. And Katie would even say and has said that she didn't really enjoy it at first. I want to encourage you, stay humble. Stay humble like I had to stay humble. God forced me to stay humble because of the initial results. Eventually, though, family worship became something that all of us began to look forward to, to enjoy together. That can happen for you, too. Number three this morning, husband Christ. So we, what we said so far, love with self-sacrificial leadership for her good, which is for your good, husbands. So Paul appeals to the way he expresses, this is for your good, he appeals to the way that men take care of their bodies. Now, if I was preaching this message, preaching this passage to husbands, to men 20 years ago, this would have been a hard sell. But you millennials have made it a lot easier. Let me tell you why. The way you take care of your bodies. Men. I had a couple different South, Africans, South African men recently tell me that they're largely cutting meat out of their diet. South African men cutting meat out of their diet, and they are feeling great about it. And I wouldn't dare tell you who those men are for, for, for fear, right? For fear of, of Bri and Bill Tong shaming, right? Later, for fear of meat shaming that I know what happens in the South African culture. I'm not going to tell you. But they're paying attention to their bodies. They're into, they feel good. More of you are paying attention to the nourishment of your body. So many of you keep your bodies incredibly fit, you men. In fact, a few of you are listening to this later on a podcast because you missed the church service this morning to run off the beaten path and yet another marathon. Well, no one ever hated his own flesh. That's what Paul says. No one hates it. They take care of it. They nourish it. One of the false rumors about Christianity is that you're not allowed to do anything for your own good. 
Elsewhere in the New Testament, the apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 verse 9 that the goal of your faith is the salvation of your own soul. If that's not for your own good, I don't know what is. Here Paul appeals to to loving your wife with self-sacrificial leadership because husbands, it's for your own good. He pulls this card also. He says, she is part of who you are. So when Paul says, quoting Genesis, the two shall become one flesh, almost every commentator says that's a reference to the rib moment. Remember when God takes a rib from Adam and, and, and makes Eve around that rib? Paul is saying here, she's a part of you. Why would you not take care of her? She's part of who you are. Why won't you take care of your body? Jesus does this as well, right? Jesus takes care, nourishes, cherishes his own body, the church. Why? Because he knows his bride's going to respond with mutual love and respect. I mean, I, I can testify from experience the times I, I've pioneered in our marriage relationship for Katie. When, I, when I've served her by, by going first, by putting myself in harm's way first. And, and man, I've been more than rewarded. Um, sometimes it's taken a while. In some ways, it's taken uh, 15 years. So for those of you who, who don't see the immediate results, men who sacrifice on half your wife, I mean, you don't see the results, know that, be patient. Be patient. I, I have received back from Katie tenfold I've been blessed tenfold in my marriage because she has been so good to me. Stick with it. Remember, along the way, any sacrifice you make is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God sees you laying down your life, men, one step at a time, and he's well-pleased, husbands. He's well-pleased. One of my biggest fears in preaching this, one of my biggest fears, husbands, is that you're going to hear this, and it's going to feel like a tremendous burden. You're going to feel like, like kind of like Atlas, the world on your shoulders. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for, for her, how, how? Like, how? <laughs> it's heavy. So I want to be crystal clear this morning. You're not called to be her savior. You are not called to be your wife's sake. You, you might feel like that. You might feel like sometimes she is looking to you to be her all in all, to, to look like Chris Pratt and to love like her best friend, something like that, right? You may, you may feel that way, and that is not your calling. You are not her all. You are not her bread of life. You're not the full nourishment that she needs. You cannot be the whole meal for her. You can only be a taste. Have you guys ever worked on a meal for, for, for long enough where you, just, you wanted to get it just right? Like you really wanted to get it just right. Maybe, maybe it was a stew, a souffle. Maybe it was a, a pot of chili or a big thing of turtle soup, right? And, and along the way you were making it, you take a spoon and you offer it to your spouse to have a try, right? So you, you take from the pot, you give it to your spouse. Hey, would you try this? Would you try this? Just a taste. That's how I envision our job as a spouse. Neither of us can give the whole meal. We have the capacity for spoons. That's all we have. We cannot be a savior. But we, but we can use that spoon, our lives, to go from, from Jesus to our spouse and deliver one taste at a time. Go to Jesus for our love, our encouragement, our acceptance, our, our fuel, and go to our spouse and say, here you go. Have a taste. Have a taste. Have a taste. 
And that, that's, that's the message in a nutshell this morning, husbands. Offer daily tastes of Christ's love expressed through self-sacrificial leadership. Offer daily tastes of that self-sacrificial love expressed through the, this leadership. Just one step at a time. Or another way to put it would be, be a pioneer. Like, go first. Take some way every day. Show that sacrificial, I'll go first, I'll take the heat, love of Christ to your wife. Offer that taste. Every time that you step up to initiate that hard but necessary conversation, every time you, you stop to listen and be present, even though you, you just feel everything in you wants to keep doing what you're doing, every time you venture into unchartered territory leading the way, you give your wife another taste of Jesus' sacrifice for her. So this past Wednesday, Billy Graham died at the age of 99. Billy's one of my heroes. If you, you don't know who he is, he's most famous for preaching the gospel of Jesus in 185 countries to 285 million people, including to my wife, Katie, who trusted her life to Jesus at the Billy Graham Crusade when she was six years old in Florida. Billy was married to Ruth Graham for 63 years before she passed away. He was a great but imperfect marriage. Ruth was a famously independent, fiery woman. Now, once, once after she wrecked the family car, Billy, who was away at the time, tried in vain to, you know, persuade her to just, just maybe take a break from driving for a while. And when Ruth refused, <laughs> he said, I don't recall in Scripture that Sarah ever talked to Abraham like this. She responded, well, I don't recall in Scripture that Abraham ever tried to take away Sarah's camel from her. <laughs> That's awesome. They didn't always agree. And man, this is even to Ruth's preference. She liked to say, if two people agree on everything, one of them is unnecessary. <laughs> not talking about a marriage relationship where the guy says everything to do and the woman says nothing back. That's not at all what this is talking about here. Billy initiated steps to love her well. It was earlier in his ministry, 1948, when he and his team on a crusade, they traveled often together in prayer. They pledged, he said, pledged among ourselves to avoid any situation that would even have appearance of compromise or suspicion. From that day on, I did not travel, meet, or eat alone in private with a woman other than my wife. We determined that the Apostle Paul's mandate to the young Pastor Timothy would be ours as well. Flee youthful lusts. How do you think she felt about that? I bet well-loved. He was famous for calling ahead to hotels, asking that they remove the TV from his hotel room because of temptation, what was on that TV screen. And when they didn't remove it, he would actually physically take the TV, unplug it, and put it outside his hotel room. He always honored her in front of others, respectful. He's always quick to credit her, serve her. And she responded. Their daughter, Gigi, once wrote, from the time I was a small girl, I knew my mother and daddy loved each other. It was obvious. Each time my daddy entered the room, mother's eyes lit up, and I knew that she felt her heart rise within her. He was quick to hold her close, to grasp her hand, to give her a tender kiss. Friends, no marriage is perfect, but every marriage can display perfect moments. Taste of Jesus himself, a husband laying down his life to love and lead his wife, and a wife responding with mutual love and respect. That could be us too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this often misunderstood but so powerful teaching. Many of us may be surprised this morning to learn that 
our marriage relationship or marriage relationships in general are more than just about two people loving each other, about having a family, about fulfilling each other, right? about trips to Airbnbs and going overseas together. It's, it's about even something more than just the two people, much more. It's about reflecting you, Jesus, and your love for the church. Jesus, I pray this morning that each of us would be inspired towards that kind of marriage. And for every husband here this morning, I pray that he wouldn't feel overwhelmed by that kind of self-sacrificial leadership, that he wouldn't feel like he has to be the savior, he doesn't have to be the meal, he just has to be a taste. Every day, giving his wife a loving taste of self-sacrifice, of love, and of leadership by laying his life down. Please help us. Jesus, we need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.